I want to let you know, I'm, I'm going to take another uh, moment to be pastoral with us as a congregation. And I want to make sure you understand, I'm being pastoral, not political. And one of the reasons I'm being pastoral is because the text of, of our book today, the book of Zephaniah that we're going to cover, um, the text forces me to do that. In Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 4, we read this. Gaza will be abandoned and Eshkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Do you see what we see there in this passage that God has somehow providentially allowed me to be preaching on today? Gaza. <laughs> um, Ashkelon, Eshdod, Ekron. These are cities of the Philistine plain. The Philistines who lived on this coastal plain they're the reason that this land is called Palestine. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a setting for what's going on here with Gaza. This is um, Israel and the, the um, yellow gold um, areas are areas that at some point Israel has, has controlled. I'm going to give you a little bit of a history of this. Uh, when Israel was, was made a nation, they had a much smaller area. And then when people would attack them, they would win the war and take their their area. They would expand their areas, and, but they have used some of those areas to negotiate peace treaties by giving back the Sinai uh, to Egypt and Gaza to the Palestinians in the West Bank. But this is the area we're talking about here. Um, currently, this is um, what we're looking at. This is Israel, and you can see Gaza down there on the bottom left. That's the area that we're talking about. Gaza mentioned in our passage in Zephaniah in chapter 2. Three chapters Zephaniah chapter 2 mentions Gaza, but it also mentions these two other cities um, that are just north. If you keep, or three other cities, if you keep moving north um, out of Gaza City and you move out of Gaza, you're going to get to Ashkelon and Ekrod um, and Ashdod. Um, these cities that we are talking about, if you'll pay attention, not only is Gaza in the news, but when Gaza is firing some of their missiles, when the Hamas uh, militants in Gaza are firing their missiles, they're hitting Ashdod and Ekron and Ashkelon. That's where all of this is going. I, I want to see if I can try to make some pastoral sense of this. I want to remind you back in 2015, so eight years ago, um, I did a, a series on apologetics, and one of those messages was on trying to understand Islam. Um, and so I encourage you, you can get it. It's on our website. You can go back there. There were a few resources that we made available. Uh, I'm going to talk about some of the resources today, but there was a lot that we talked about uh, during that. But here's some points I want to make pastorally, and I'm going to take some time to develop all of this. I want to remind you and make some distinctions for us to be able to think clearly. The Arabs are a people group. They are the descendants of Ishmael. So there's a group of people out there. They are the Arabs. They are the descendants of Ishmael. The Islamic religion, Muslims, that's a religion, and it's not the exact same people group. They are the followers of Muhammad. So Arabs, people group, descendants of Ishmael. Um, Muslims, religion, followers of Muhammad. Jews are both a people group, the descendants of Abraham, and a religion, followers of the law of Moses. There's a third group that comes into play here, and that is the Israel as a nation, which was established in 1948, which is not the same as Jews. There are millions of Jews in New York City who aren't part of the nation, and believe it or not, most of them are not following Moses. There are Jews who are in Israel 
who are following Moses who don't want to be part of the nation of Israel. Hasidic Jews, the black hats with the ringlets, they don't believe that the current state of Israel is legitimate. So there's a group of Jews who don't think that the 1948 established nation of Israel is a legitimate state because that group of Jews is expecting Messiah to come and rule over them. But their expectation, the black hats with the ringlets, their expectation is that Messiah is going to come for the first time to rule. Our perspective is different. We're believing that that's Messiah that they're expecting. He's going to come, but it's going to be the second time. He came the first time to redeem. He's going to rule a second time. So Arabs and Muslims are not the same group. They overlap, certainly, but they're not the same. Jews um, can be Jewish ethnically. They can be Jewish religiously, or you can have Israel as a nation. Okay, see if I can make a little more sense of this. Here's some maps. This is the Arab League. These are the Arab nations across North Africa, the Middle East, but it stops up there with Syria and Iraq. Once you start moving north of Iraq, now you're dealing with Persians, not Arabs. Persians are a people group. Arabs are a people group. Okay, so this is the Arab League. This is the Arab nations. That is different than Muslims around the world. Much bigger area. Much, much bigger area. Um, There's a huge population of Muslims that live um, in Indonesia, maybe the largest population. Um, One other thing I'm going to try to make sense of here, some demographics. Worldwide, there are 1.7 billion Muslims, second largest religion in the world. 25% of the world claims to be Muslim. Now, some of them are nominal, just like the largest religion in the world, Christianity, but some of them nominal. In the Middle East, 380 million Muslims. North Africa, 115 million Muslims. Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, 550 million Muslims in those areas, highly, highly populated areas. The distribution of that looks like this. The darker the area, the more concentrated and the more percentage of the population are Muslims. And so you can see Muslims are spread around the world. Again, that's not the same as Arabs. Arabs is going to be a much smaller group. Um, There's another map that you need to see, and this one's a little bit more difficult to distinguish, but the light green, those are um, the, the the Sunni Muslims and the Shiite Muslims are the darker green. That's the more militant group that is based mostly in in Iran. So where am I going with all of this? (laughs) Let me give you a little brief history just to put some of this in context. Jesus Christ probably lived from 4 BC to 33 AD. That's his life. Muhammad, 500, 600 years later, lived. Um, He lived in Mecca, uh, in, in, he lived in uh, Mecca, Medina, and then back in Mecca. Um, and Muhammad is the one who started the Muslim religion. Um, once he starts the religion, it spreads pretty quickly over the Middle East. There's a, a rapid spread, and it spreads so far um, that it begins to in, encroach on Europe, and that's what prompted the Crusades. Um, There are a number of religious reasons, and none of them are very good, that the church um, had crusades that were trying to push the Muslims back and to take over um, Jerusalem again. And they did for about 100 years, but then the the Muslims took over again. The Muslims under the Ottomans, now these are Turks, okay? So you've you've got Arabs. You've got Persians, you've got Turks, you've got Europeans that are all, all now Muslims now. The, the Turkish Empire begins to really press 
until um, the siege of Vienna. So I don't know if you know your Europe map very well, but the Muslims had pushed way into Europe. And it's at Vienna in 16, uh, when is it, 1683, that the Muslims were stopped moving across Europe. Um, that is the setup for what we now know as World War I. Um, because the Muslims are going to unify with the Germans, and that's going to develop a world war. Um, after that war, um, the Arabs, the Ottoman Turk Empire, which had allied itself with Germany, after the war, um, the Arab states are granted statehood back in Israel. And that's when um, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, all of these, um, these areas were created, but largely under the rule of the British and the French. Now we're going to have another world war. And at the end of that world war, Israel um, is going to be granted um, national state status as a homeland for the Jews. Because in World War II, what's happened is all of the Jews, and by the way, all of Europe was fairly anti-Semitic. All of Europe wanted to get rid of Jews. So not only was Germany under Hitler trying to persecute the Jews in the Holocaust and, and killing millions of them, but the rest of Europe wanted them out as well. And so the Arabs who were back in the land, they're like, why are you giving, why are you giving them our land? At that point, they're saying it's, it's their land. But the anti-Semitic sentiment in, um, in Europe was, let's give them a land. At one point, they tried to give them a place in East Africa. Um, but they didn't want it. They wanted their land because from a Jewish standpoint, God has promised us this land. They established that land in 1948, and then there's a series of wars and rebellions as everybody is opposing Israel, okay? They're constantly opposing Israel, and it basically works like this. Every time somebody opposes Israel, Israel fights back and takes a little bit of their land. <laughs> They're trying to squeeze Israel, and Israel expands. Um, I, there's a couple of things you need to know is going on here. Anti-Semitism is a huge thing, and I believe that there's something spiritual behind it. There's something spiritual behind anti-Semitism, trying to get rid of the nation of Israel, because I really do believe, not everyone believes this, I do believe that there are still promises that God will fulfill to the nation of Israel. But those promises are going to come when the spirit moves within the nation of Israel, there's a revival, many Jewish people will come to faith in Christ, and then Christ will establish his rule. So let me go back to my points here. Arabs are a people group, Islam is a religion, Jews are a people group and a religion, and Israel is a nation. We've got to keep all of these separate in our thinking, okay? Now, um, I have some resources I'll highlight, but I have one very, very long resource that I'll make available to you. It's 59 pages. It's by Dr. Alan Ross, um, one of my mentors, um, and it's 59 pages on the history of the Middle East, he goes back literally, when he goes back to the history, he starts with Stone Age. Okay, so he goes all the way back, does a thorough presentation of this. It's not at the table, it's not on the website. If you want it, you're going to have to email me or text me and I'll send it to you. you got to really want this 59 pages, but it is the best thing I think you could ever read to kind of give you a perspective of what's going on back there. In that, Dr. Ross says this, Christians today, now I'm pastoring. I'm not being political, I am pastoring. Christians today need to exhibit the love and the grace of God to all people in the world. If they show an unwarranted partiality in the Middle East, they'll get nowhere for the cause of Christ. 
They have to be clear that God has a glorious plan that will solve all problems we face, but the fulfillment will come when Christ returns and we are all changed. The nation of Israel and the United States is not the solution to this problem. It's Jesus Christ. The spiritual hope is faith in Jesus Christ. The political peace will only come when Jesus Christ returns. He goes on to say this. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there's no share in the world to come. Does Judaism have its own covenant and therefore no need for Christ? Certainly not. The Jews don't get a pass just because they're Jewish. God does have a future for them, but they are excluded from that. That's why I don't think we have to have blind loyalty to the nation of Israel. If, as Islam says, Jesus is a prophet, but not the divine son of God, not the savior, then we are all in our sins and we have no hope. Worse than that, we are guilty of idolatry for worshiping a mere man, which is what Islam says we are guilty of. But as Paul affirms, Jesus is declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And when he comes in glory, everyone will see that he is Lord and our God. And apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there's no share in that world to come. The only hope that we have in the world spiritually is faith in Jesus Christ. There are no passes outside that. So um, someone asked me earlier, how do I explain this to my kids? Here's the deal. We are far people who get on the Jesus team. And if you're not on the Jesus team, whether you're Jewish or Muslim, our heart is for you to get on the Jesus team. That's your only hope. And your only hope is not some political intervention by country. So here we go. <laughs> all Arabs are not Muslims and all Jews are not Jewish. Some Jews are just culturally Jewish. So therefore pray for the salvation of Jews and Muslims. What should be our response? Pray that people will be saved. All over Israel and Gaza and Ashkelon and Eshdod, pray that God will move in those places. And there are Palestinian Christians who are ministering there. The Israeli state is not the solution. Jesus Christ is the only answer. And then finally, you should be a Christian before you're an American. There's a whole other question as American and who should we be allies with? And, and that's a different question, but I want you, us to be critical in our thinking. We need to be reasonable Christians who are separating and saying, yes, I'm an American and I need to be a good citizen, vote, um, support our political allies, because the people who hate Israel in the Middle East, they hate us too. So there's a benefit for us to be in allies with Israel. That is an American perspective. It's not your Christian perspective. You need to be a critical thinker about everything that you're hearing, because the Jews or the Muslims don't get a pass. They all need Christ. Pray that that will be happening. And pray that the solution to this is not any, any victory on the war, any intervention, or any fleet of carriers. Here's our only hope. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Last words of Revelation. That's our hope. So with that as our hope, I've got two resources out there. One of them is kind of a theological perspective on is there a future for Israel? Do we need to even worry about this? 
The other one is a summary of that 59-page article. I've just given you kind of the introduction, a little spot in the middle, and the conclusion um, uh, that gives you an introduction to that. If you want more than that, you let me know. Now, we're going to look at the Bible. (laughs) Because the Bible made me have that conversation and pastor us as people to say we should be praying for the salvation of people all around the world, being involved in getting the gospel to them, um, through missionaries that we have who are there, who actually Russ and uh, Rachel are coming home um, because they are ministering in that area, but it's become unsafe for them. But we have missionaries who are working there. We have shoeboxes that are going there. That needs to be our prayer. And then our prayer needs to be that Jesus Christ would come. All of this comes out of a th- little three-chapter book called Zephaniah. Um, Zephaniah really highlights the day of the Lord. Danny Hayes says this, the prophets in general and Zephaniah in particular describe a coming time when God will crash into human history and according to his plan, bring about salvation and blessing for his people who trust in him as well as a terrible wrath on those who reject him. Zephaniah calls this time in history, the day of the Lord. Larry Walker says this, the focal point of Zephaniah's message is the day of the Lord, a phrase that appears 23 times in Zephaniah and an expression used more by him than any other prophet. For Zephaniah, the day is near. It is a day of wrath, distress, anguish, trouble, ruin, darkness, gloom, clouds, and blackness. The day of the Lord, or many times it's just called the day or that great day, It's a day that is going to be a day of judgment and blessing because judgment is going to precede the blessing. Got a number of resources out there related to the book of Zephaniah. There's a background, two articles by Danny Hayes um, on the day of the Lord. Uh, There's another one on Zephaniah who's said to be a Cushite. It's a fascinating reference to him. I'll talk about it in just a minute. And then the entire historical background of what's going on in this book that I'm going to describe briefly, but Larry Walker's got a, a larger article of that. Here's what Bruce Wilkinson says. Zephaniah hammers home his message repeatedly that the day of the Lord, judgment day, is coming. When the malignancy of sin will be dealt with, Israel and her Gentile neighbors will soon experience the crushing hand of God's wrath. But after the chastening process is complete, blessing will come in the person of Messiah who will be the cause for praise and singing. Again, this is the same message we've been hearing over and over again. The Lord's going to come. He's going to judge his enemies. He's going to bless his people who will worship him. And his people who are not worshiping him will be disciplined so they'll move into that place where they can worship him. Zephaniah is one of it's the last of the pre-exilic prophets that we're going to talk about. Um, there's a time when the kingdom is united, and there are really no prophets that write books during this time. During the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon, what we find is non-writing prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Huldah, uh, non-writing prophets, prophets who are prophesying, Nathan the prophet, but they didn't write books. Once the kingdom divides into the north and the south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, now the prophets are going to start to to preach. And there's going to be a group that preached to the north, a group that preaches to the south. And then we have three prophets left, and they're all after the exile. The exile is related to this. In Assyria, um, Assyria in 722 BC comes down to that northern nation and scatters them around the world. In 586 BC, the Babylonians, who have pushed out the Assyrians up in the Fertile Crescent, in 586, the Babylonians are going to come down, and they're going to take the southern kingdom captive. 
the northern event has already happened when Zephaniah is writing. But the southern event is yet to happen. And that's when Zephaniah is writing right in between those two events. So Zephaniah is a pre-exilic prophet to Judah. There's no more Israel when he's preaching. Um, He is preaching around 630. So just connecting to what I said earlier, 2,650 years ago, 2,650 years ago, Gaza was in the news. And it's in the news now because God is still working out his plan. Um, One of the other ways that I've shown you we can look at this, the Assyrians were the dominant power in the Fertile Crescent for a long time. The Babylonians then began to push uh, the the Assyrians out. And during that time when the Babylonians and the Assyrians are, are vying for power, that's when Zephaniah is going to preach. And he's going to say, Um, The Assyrians have been the big bad guys on the street, but the Babylonians are getting ready to be the big bad guys on the street. So let's talk about what's going on in this book, who's writing and all of that. Two notable things to highlight about Zephaniah. First of all, he was the great, great grandson of King Hezekiah, and thus he was a part of the royal family. He wasn't an heir to the throne, but he would have been a part of the royal family. And we, we know that because there's a number of Hezekiahs, but why would you get a guy's great-great-grandfather in the genealogy at the first part of the book if it weren't the fact that you're trying to say, hey, this guy had an impact. He's part of the royal family. He's a mover and he's a shaker. The second thing that's highlighted that's really interesting, they don't do this with all the prophets, he was the son of Cushy. By the way, if you're typing that, it always tries to autocorrect to sushi. So I am sorry if anything I have out there in print says that Zephaniah is the son of sushi. That's autocorrect. He's cushy, okay? This in some way connects him to the nation of Cush in modern Ethiopia, south of Egypt. He was a part of the palace and, a glo- and had a global perspective. Cush is, is south of Egypt, what we now know as Ethiopia. And in some way, he seemed to have had a connection there. Either one of his ancestors was from there, or he was named after um, that area. He's connected there somehow. When is this written? The ministry of Zephaniah is tied tightly to the reign of King Josiah. It says that he ministered during the reign of King Josiah. At the beginning of Josiah's reign, the Assyrians still dominate the region having driven the Cushites out of Egypt and destroying Thebes, the center of Cushite religious domination in Egypt. The Cushites had come up from the south of of Africa. They had dominated Egypt, and they uh, had a religion, and the Assyrians had pushed them out. Meanwhile, to the east of Assyria, the Babylonians are rising to power. By the end of Josiah's reign, the Assyrians are in retreat, and the Babylonians are aggressively expanding. There's cultural, there's war in the air, okay? There's political, um, uh, maneuvering going on during this time. And Israel's right in the middle of all of that because everybody's battling around them and Israel is kind of the, the key land bridge that gets you from the Fertile Crescent down to the, uh, the, the Nile River, which is the other fertile place in the world. So this is, uh, gosh, it's just so similar to today. In the Middle East, there's a lot of political maneuvering that's going on. Uh, Manasseh and Ammon were godless kings and led the southern nation of Judah into great idolatry, some of the worst possible kings. Josiah, who assumed the throne at the age of eight because his father Ammon was killed by the Lord, um, he was a God-fearing ruler 
It's talked about in 2 Kings 22 through 23. The reforms of Josiah involved discovering the book of Deuteronomy, long lost and neglected. Think about that for a minute. Josiah assumes the throne and he's saying, oh, we've got this temple. What's there? They find in the closet, they find Deuteronomy and start to read it. And Josiah goes, oh, my word, we've messed up. He purges the nation of foreign cults and practices. But these reforms under Josiah do not appear to have influenced Zephaniah's audience much as he seems to be addressing the majority of the nation, he doesn't mention Josiah's reforms, and the people are ripe for judgment. Zephaniah is ministering during this time, and and Josiah is leading this reformation, and it either doesn't last very long at all, or it's not very widespread because Zephaniah seems to be going, guys, this place, this this is still an issue, still going on here. So who's the audience? Zephaniah is delivering his message to this pre-exilic community in Judah. His ministries during the time or shortly after Josiah's revival may have supported it or highlighted its lack of substance. The revival, um, clearly the revival doesn't last long because the very next king is wicked again. We've got problems throughout all this time. Where's all of this happening? (laughs) In the world that's on your maps on Fox News and CNN every night. That's, That's where this is happening. It's all of these same places. Why was Zephaniah written? Zephaniah gives a full picture of the coming day of the Lord, which includes both judgment on the Gentile nations and Judah. You're going to see how he does that very creatively. As well as a coming time when Judah will be restored, and along with other Gentile nations, Messiah will be worshipped. So this is a short little book that really, again, like Micah, packs the whole message of the prophets all together. So how does all this fit together? Um, basically there's a prologue that introduces us to Zephaniah, Hezekiah's great-great-grandson, the son of Cushi. Um, and then there's a, a, a first judgment speech that says judgment's coming on Judah and Jerusalem. A second judgment speech, judgment is coming on Judah and the nations. And then the restoration, there's going to be a remnant and that remnant is going to be gathered by a restorer, the Messiah. So we get the people, and then we get their leader who is going to deliver them and who's going to be worshipped at the end. I've got a chart at the Connection Center. It's on the website. You can look at it. It tries to present all of these things and highlight some of the the key verses uh, in this book. What's the message of Zephaniah? Zephaniah described the coming day of the Lord as a time of intense judgment by the sovereign Lord on Judah and the nations, followed by a time of restoration and worship, in order to lead Judah to repent and to encourage the remnant to rejoice that the judgment of the Lord leads to salvation and entrance into the kingdom. Um, There's a lot going on in this book, but it's a pretty simple message. God's coming to judge, and he's going to restore. Let's work through this. He starts off at the very beginning. Again, these these introductory verses um, just jump into the deep end really quickly. There's a reversal of creation. By the way, the days of creation itself are being reversed here. God is judging the world. Everything he established, he's judging, turning it on its head. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. He's coming to wipe everything out. Now, at one level, this is going to happen when the Babylonians come. It's going to happen when God uh, comes a number of times. But ultimately, as this prophecy skips through time, ultimately, this is going to be fully fulfilled when we get a new heaven and a new earth that is when this current earth is destroyed by fire. 
God told Noah, I'm not going to destroy the earth by water again. But we find out in 1 Peter that he does destroy it by fire. He's going to wipe it all out and renew it so that we can live on it. Our, Our future, by the way, this is good news. Our future is a new heaven and a new earth. Our future is not living in the clouds somewhere with a diaper playing a harp. It's not our future, okay? Our future is a new heaven and a new earth where we get to do things that Adam and Eve were originally entitled to do, which is interacting in this glorious place um, with animals, and, and everything we do will be worship. That's our future. But before we get there, there's going to be this great reversal. God's going to judge all idolatry. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. It almost feels like, Josiah, you pushed out some of the Baal worship, but God's going to come and destroy all the remnants, the very names of the idolatrous priests. The priests in Israel were leading them into this. Those who bow down to the roofs uh, to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. People completely turned away from the Lord and they're seeking all of these pagan gods. And all of this, this is kind of just my introductory time, but it happens 23 times. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has, appear, has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. This is the day of the Lord. Now, I'm going to read you the next verse, because this is absolutely frightening. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He's consecrated those he's invited. He's invited some people to a sacrifice, not to watch it, but to be the sacrifice. (laughs) Listen to this. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those who clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple with gods and violence and deceit superstitious people who are trying to get it in life by avoiding, you know, step on a crack, break your mother's back, people who live by that, people who are worshiping other gods, they're going to be the ones who are sacrificed, and in particular, the leaders who are leading them into that. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Um, these promises of judgment are going to happen um, frequently through time as foreshadows of the big one that's going to come. The promises that you're going to see in just a minute of God regathering his people. That's going to happen a number of times throughout history until he finally regathers them for the last time to worship him forever when he destroys the whole earth by fire. In the middle of this, twice there's a call to repentance. That's why it's skipping. Judgment's coming, but you need to repent. Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and the day passes like windblown chaff. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. While you got a moment, turn to the Lord. And by the way, that's a message for us too. It's never too late. No matter what's happened in your life, no matter where you may be right now, no matter what addiction or passion or thing you may be caught up in that you know the Lord is displeased with, it's never too late for you to turn from that. 
God is always saying, turn, humble yourself enough to turn back to the Lord. And then he's going to do something fascinating in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Here's the map of the Middle East. And what he's going to do is he's going to highlight these towns that we've mentioned already. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to talk about Gaza. That's to the um, west of Israel. Then he's going to mention Moab to the east of Israel. Then he's going to mention Cush to the south of Israel. Then he's going to mention Assyria to the north of Israel. Now, as all of this is surrounding them, initially they may have been thinking, oh, that's great. God's judging all of my neighbors. The problem is all God is doing is zeroing in, (laughs) finding his target, because right in the middle of that is what he's going to move to, and that is the judgment that's going to come on Jerusalem. Woe to the city of oppressors rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. They're not shepherds. They're taking advantage of people. And at this point, I just want to go, is, is, this, is this a church? <laughs> Could this be said of, of God's people today? Rebellious, defiled, not accepting correction? Um, not drawing near to the Lord in the middle of all of this, leaders who are leading people astray, rather than calling them back to full-on dedication to the Lord. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. By the way, this is me, okay? Applicational, you should have been thinking about you for a lot. Now you should be thinking about me. Unprincipled, treacherous people, priests, profane the sanctuary, do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Keep your eyes on the Lord, not the leaders. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every new day does not fail, yet the righteous know no shame. The righteous people are just continuing to work on and just act like, okay, we're going to get away with it. Everything is going to be fine. Oh, Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would be destroyed, nor, nor all my, would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act, eager to act corruptly in all they did. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to turn. I was hoping this revival would take. But it didn't. You're too selfish. You're, you're too proud to actually turn to the Lord and say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? And would it be praying rather than being irate? Would it be um, investing in the great commission rather than investing in the next purchase that you're thinking about making? Here's the summary of the judgment. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Wow. Day of the Lord coming. But then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. I'm going to judge those who will not turn. And then I'm going to bring all my worshipers together and they will worship me. 
Sing, daughters of Zion, sing aloud, shout uh, aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the king of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear, fear any harm. Still future, folks. Israel's battling, and they're using their old resources and an iron dome, which I'm happy for. But the iron dome is not what they need. They need the Messiah, the king of the world, to come back to defend them. We sing about this one. We sing this song, and now you should know, oh, yeah, that's Zephaniah. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. What a glorious thing. God's going to judge those who proudly will never return. And then he's going to restore those who will humble themselves and turn back to him. Gosh, what a great delight. And he sings over us with joy because his joy is not to judge. His joy is to restore. Here's the summary of the restoration. At that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. It's the end of the book. He will restore them but not because they get a pass, but because they will return to the Lord. They will humble themselves. So what do we do with this wild day of the Lord book? (laughs) Um, Here's where this fits. It's a theology of the day of the Lord used 23 times, both judgment and restoration. That's what Zephaniah is. When you think of Zephaniah, you should think, oh, that's the day of the Lord book. Judgment and restoration. And it's a theology of future hope. The burning indignation of the Lord is the pathway to purification, restoration, and, fellow, and, um, and fulfillment. God, God will bring people to worship him. But the pathway to get that is judgment on his enemies and purification of his people. Just think about that in your life. While you've got time, allow his purification to work so that you become more of a worshiper and you're investing your life in his purposes. So what should we believe? God will take care of evil and people including evil nations. God's going to take care of all this. God will purify his people and call all nations to praise him. And God will completely fulfill all of his promises. So what should we, how should we behave? Keep your hope alive. Not in the powers of this world. Not in people figuring it out. Not in negotiations, not in alliances. Keep your hope alive. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And if you're messed up in things, repent while you still can. Just humble yourself to say, I'm out of control. I'm involved in things that I, I, I shouldn't be involved in. My attentions, my passions are going ways that are, are horrible. And then just wait for the Lord to bring justice restoration, and rescue for you. So here's some next steps for this. Take a moment to consider if your life is distinguishable from the people in the world around you. That's one of the problems here is when when Zephaniah is describing um, Gaza and Moab and Cush and Assyria, God's people could have easily said, oh yeah, they're they're idolaters. They're, They're idolaters too. Are, are you distinguishable from the world around you? 
Do people, do people see you as a distinct person who, who's not deserving the judgment of God, but who's being blessed by God? Ask yourself this question. When the day of the Lord comes, will I be in line for purification or judgment? <laughs> am, am I in line for purification or blessing? Think about it. And embrace the future hope that your hope is not in this life. It's not investing in this life. Your hope is in the future of what Jesus Christ is going to do for us. Father, we are so grateful that in your indignation and fierce anger, you are mighty to save. Lord, may we be the people, while we can, that realign ourselves with your purposes and your love and your message of hope to the world. May we, first of all, embrace that hope, that our hope is in Jesus Christ and him alone. What he has already done to purchase our salvation through his death on the cross, validated by his resurrection. May we, may we be the people who have that as our hope and the hope that everything will be set right, not when we figure it out, but when you return. So Father, my final prayer, help us to repent while we have time, but even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?